Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. And welcome to another episode of Behind the Decks, a event music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each episode, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We discuss their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode, Venters, is someone I discovered on Twitter because he made one of the most niche but amazing dance music records I've ever heard. His name is Jamie, or as he is otherwise known, Jamaha. That record was a deep house track which used vocal samples of football manager and EFL legend Mick McCarthy. Don't worry, you'll hear it in the outro so you know exactly what I mean. Jamie was born and raised in Coventry in the West Midlands, but now resides in the Dutch city of Amsterdam. Going viral, life decisions, substance abuse and rediscovering yourself are all on the menu for this episode. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with Jamaha. Jamie, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. We are finally here after months and months of chatting and figuring out when we were going to do this. First things first, how was your Christmas over in Dam or in Cov and did you manage to enjoy it? Cheers, Freddie. Yeah, it's nice to finally catch up with you. Yeah, Christmas was, I don't know, yeah, like everyone, it was a bit non-eventful, obviously with all the craziness going on. I couldn't get back to the UK. I didn't get back for the whole of last year. There were like opportunities to get back just before the Christmas period but I just thought morally it didn't feel right flying around even though I'd like to see my family and stuff so yeah we just had a bit of a quiet one here and yeah tried to make the most of it thankfully my mum was able to send a a nice kind of Christmas package over so we got some English treats and stuff so yeah it weren't too bad yeah so all good. As I said in the intro, I discovered you and connected with you because of your viral Mick Mac single. And as a Huddersfield Town fan, a very proud Huddersfield Town fan and an EFL nerd, I just had to get you on to talk about it and your journey. What has been the feedback to it and how did it feel going viral? Yeah, nice one. Um, Generally, the feedback's been amazing. I've had so many nice comments under the actual original post itself. There's just so many nice and encouraging responses and people asking for different ones and it seemed to switch a lot of people on and they connected with it. It was a bit overwhelming. Obviously, I didn't really expect such a response I'd kind of been working on it just for my own amusement I didn't think it would have such the uptake absolutely delighted so uh, yeah it's been good we're gonna dive into it a bit more later in the pod mate but that's all done and out the way let's crack on with the show let's start the pod mate by going right back to the beginning and talk about how your journey as Jamaha began but first why don't you tell the listeners about how your love affair with music began you know tell me a bit about some of your favorite records growing up maybe some music idols the impact they had on your mental health and then how you first got into producing or playing instruments music for me it was all about early 90s so kind of a lot of stuff that was on the radio I had quite a young stepdad you know when you're a kid you just kind of you're traveling around in a car sitting in the back of the car and listening to whatever is on the radio or your parents are kind of listening to so I kind of grew up 
very early on here in Oasis and Stone Roses and Doors and slightly weirder rock that I probably shouldn't have been exposed to at such an early age. So that turned me on to kind of more alternative genres, I guess. And it made me kind of pick up the guitar. Oasis were a massive one for me in terms of taking it beyond just listening to something and wanting to actually do something with it and get creative. But yeah, also, yeah, listening to the stuff my mum was listening to on the radio on a Sunday morning when she's doing the housework and a lot of Northern Soul and things like that, which I didn't really appreciate at the time as much, but it's something I've really fallen in love with in the last few years. They were kind of the early influences, definitely. And as I say, yeah, the kind of indie rock, Britpop, yeah, as I was kind of in the middle of my teens was a massive thing. And then it kind of developed into like even heavier kind of alternative stuff. So I got into like emo and new metal and stuff. My time frame from like the kind of genres of music that have been popular for me while growing up have been pretty horrendous, probably historically. I think, yeah, it was, I mean, Britpop had its moments and yeah, obviously it's celebrated, but I'm not sure it's going to age wickedly well. New metal has already died on its ass. I think at the time every, everyone really kind of embraced it and not many bands have kind of come out of that looking too good and then when I was at uni it was all that like klaxons and stuff and stuff like that I can't even remember the silly genre name they gave it but a lot of like indie disco or what is it landfill indie as it's now called so like they were like the cultural center points of music as I was growing up I don't think I had a fair crack of the whip in terms of that but it is what it is Going back to what you said about new metal and emo, you told me you won a Battle of the Bands competition in your short-lived emo metal phase, but you did struggle with anxiety before shows or stage fright, as I guess it's called or commonly called now. If you could, tell me a bit about your experiences of it, how it affected you and, and perhaps how you managed to cope with it as you went along your journey as well. We started playing in a band. We did okay, kind of locally. I was the front man, so screaming and singing and jumping about the stage. And once I was actually on stage, I was fine. Like, there was no actual nerves going on stage. And I think that's quite a common thing. Once you get on there, any kind of anxieties kind of dissolve. And you actually kind of come off stage and you don't even remember the last 45 minutes or an hour. It, it kind of can sometimes be a blur. But I do remember, not initially, I don't think, but when we started doing slightly bigger gigs, and we, I mean, yeah, we're not talking a lot here, but like a semi-filled club, I remember nerves really taking over me to the point where it really started to affect my mood. Like it, Everyone could be a bit nervous, and yeah, that's natural, but like I started hiding away hiding in the toilet and kind of sitting kind of like right in the corner of the club not wanting to really talk to anyone not really being able to talk properly and so yeah I didn't really understand that at the time other than just oh that's kind of the generic stage fright that you get or you see in the films or whatever people throwing up in the toilet I mean it didn't get that physical but yeah that was an initial maybe probably my first proper experience with any kind of sense of anxiety Finding a producer alias that isn't taken is always tough and you only have to look at some of the lo-fi house DJ names recently. What was the inspiration behind Jamaha and is there a special story behind it that means a lot to you or not? 
I'd love to say there was, but no, it was literally my Twitter handle at the time of me posting the track. So Jamaha was just a slight combination of my name and, well, yeah, a little bit of a play on it. And it sounds like Yamaha. I, it just semi-tickled me at the time when I changed my my Twitter handle. Changed it every now and then. It was what it was. I've had some horrendous ones. So I'm glad it was a semi-decent one at the time when a million or so people looked at my page or whatever. So uh, yeah, I was quite thankful. And then, yeah, I did kind of um and ah about whether to kind of stick with that or kind of go with a stage name once I had to think about releasing the, the song properly and putting it on Spotify and whatnot. Before we dive into the journey of Jamaha in a bit more detail, mate, you actually stopped playing music and performing for a few years in your university time and it wasn't until you got to Amsterdam that you started making music again. How did that feel when you picked up an instrument or booted up Ableton or Garage Band? Were you worried or was it like riding a bike? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, there was a slight bit of apprehension. I think the overall kind of impulse was massive intrigue. I think I'd just got like a a decent enough computer at the time to start dipping my toe in the water in terms of recording, and I had like a, a just a guitar, an interface, and a really crappy MIDI keyboard just started faffing around I've always had a guitar with me and have periods where I'll play and not play it was more a fascination there was no expectation it was not like oh I'm gonna make loads of songs or I'm gonna put out an EP it was just me seeing how like software works I think it was just GarageBand it was my first Mac and like GarageBand is an amazing piece of software for people who want to kind of start getting into it. Really, really simple interface. So yeah, no expectations. And that was probably a good way to kind of go into it. Just playing like a child would. Yeah, just throwing paint on the wall and going for it. And I think that's a really strong place to start from whatever you're doing creatively. Let's talk about Jamaha in a bit more detail and the very short discography you have. First things first, tell me how the Mick Mac single came about, what inspired you to do it. And on the subject of going viral, we've already spoken about it a little bit, but did you have any form of apprehension when it did start to go viral? Because as we've seen in the last month or so, especially with the four Brummy lads, going viral isn't always a positive thing. <laughs> yeah, the first part of the question, yeah, it was start a lockdown. So I had a little bit more time on my hands. I was kind of having a bit of a, a rough patch mentally as well. I'd had some kind of ideas of like some slightly more serious stuff that I wanted to do musically. So like the Mick Mac project was a little bit more of kind of respite. Again, kind of no pressure. Yeah, cleaning up around the house and stuff. I'm often like doing little bits. I kind of think I'm funny, but probably not. My girlfriend thinks I'm funny. So yeah, I do lots of voices and little bits and characters and stuff. And I think there was like a deep house track or something. And I often found that, yeah, the kind of vocals they put on it can sometimes, especially if it's a bit more kind of generic, sound similar. And I just thought, it would be funny to kind of put something a little bit jarring on top of that instead. It's always like some cool soul singer that's been kind of sampled down. It's like, I just thought it'd be funny if that was Sam Allardyce or Mick McCarthy or someone like that. A really, um, yeah, legendary, well-known, rough, northern English manager. Once I'd kind of had that idea, I just worked on kind of making a really good deep house track first, which I thought I was kind of beating myself up at the time. Like, you're spending way too much time on actually doing the music for this it's just a joke but then I kind of got into the perfectionism part of it and I couldn't not 
make the drums sound good or like I really wanted yeah all of it to sound good so I did spend a bit of time on making like the foundation really good and then the exciting part was when I started yeah dropping the samples in of Mick and sometimes when you're writing something you can just tell straight away you're on to a bit of a winner. I then spent a lot longer chopping up and getting the sound right and making sure they came together and put it out and didn't really expect too much and as you said it was a little bit overwhelming at first especially some places that I really respect and like love their output like I came home from work and Mundio wanted to have a chat to me and I think yeah they'd retweeted it and like radio stations were contacting me it was exciting but I've spent a lot of time on my own or having quite a quiet life in the last couple of years so where I was once fine to kind of run on a stage in my youth a little bit more I kind of shy away a little bit from the spotlight these days so yeah that was exciting but a little bit overwhelming and had to make sure that there was uh, I'm sure there are some embarrassing photos out there on terms of like worry about the response compared to like the four Brum lads bless them there's probably some incriminating photos out there of me with some terrible haircuts especially back in the emo metal days but yeah I'm not too worried about those things so uh, yeah I welcome the spotlight my favorite part of the Mick Mac single is that vocal loop when he goes turn the shot is gob turn the shot is gob that's my favorite bit of the whole song because he is such a meme machine like he is I'd say he's second to Warnock in regards to how memed he is and how like great quotes he comes out with given you're now penchant for making deep house records using samples from legendary EFL managers that sounds so niche saying it but I love it have you got any other candidates in mind to sample which may have been memed in the past so for example Big Neil Tony Mowbray Ian Holloway Tony Pulis or even Sam Allardyce yeah there's a big list I don't want to kind of it'd be quite easy to kind of do the same vibe the whole time there's definitely one I want to get out fairly soon I've had some technical computer issues my computer died and I literally lost everything into even including a lot of my micmac stuff so that's kind of set me back a little bit but I plan to hopefully put out maybe two at the same time fairly soon Warnock was the most requested straight away everyone was wanting one on Warnock so I think you can expect to hear some Warnock based one relatively soon maybe not the same style musically I want to kind of play a little bit with different music styles dependent on the manager and it'd be good to kind of yeah do some more of the foreign managers as well and rather than just keep to the British old guard I'd love to do something with Sean Dyche though I think his voice is quite tonally quite interesting to do some stuff with so yeah I've got a huge list the potential is massive so I'm gagging to get back on and get cracking with it here's hoping for a Neil Warnock dance R&B record in the future quite recently mate you spoke about losing all of your laptop music when it died this has happened to quite a few producers throughout history. It happened to Mark Rabile very recently when his decks and kit got stolen. How did it affect you and your mental health and why is it such a big thing for DJs and producers to go through so we can educate the listeners? Well, yeah, it's kind of like losing all your notebooks or your diaries, really. And the horrendous part for me was, I mean, yeah, because I, I imagine some people were like, uh, yeah, just use your backup. It happened during a backup to the point where it wiped my hard drive and wiped my backup disk as well. So so I was kind of left with sending my, my laptop to repair and not having anything to kind of restore. The reason it's horrible is just from like a technical point of view, you have the software that you'll use to make music 
music and then there's hundreds of different bits of plugins and folders that all kind of link in to that as well so it can take quite some time to install all that again and source all your files it's just yeah a bit of a ball ache and then the stuff that you've kind of written and a lot of musicians I guess from what I hear as well you'll kind of like have half tracks and things you'll have like little sketches that you might quickly sketch out and then forget and not like when you go back and listen to it the first time but then you'll kind of have something else in mind you'll be working on something else and you can go back into your archive and pick out this bass idea or I really like what I did with a snare here or a nice little guitar line so you're losing all your, your, your notebooks basically and your work so I was upset I think a few years ago I would have really took it a lot harder but these days it helped me be a little bit more optimistic about it. It is what it is. So I can pull a little bit from some older archives. So I think I'll be able to get back some music I was making five, ten years ago. But definitely stuff that I've made in the last year, two years is completely gone. But yeah, as I said, the stems and the original pieces of Micmac, some of that's gone. I managed to find some more on one of my computers that I started the idea on. It's a nightmare logistically, and yeah, you lose a lot of kind of personal work that you've done as well. On Behind the Decks, mate, we also talk about mistakes and the importance of making them for producers and DJs. Can you tell me about a mistake or mistakes, in plural, you've made on this journey, whether that be actually as a producer or maybe in your new metal days, and most importantly, so our listeners can learn, what did you learn from them? Um, Mistakes-wise... I think you're always making mistakes. I I mean, it's a strong word, really. I think it's a bad word in terms of being creative. Mistakes can often bring out some wonderful bits of joy and work. I think, yeah, forever making mistakes in terms of when I'm trying to write something and then that can kind of lead on to a different idea. I think mistakes back in the day or like earlier on in my music career is to kind of be so one-track-minded or kind of closed off. You can be super passionate, especially like in your early 20s and stuff. And that's a really good fire in your belly to have. But I think a lot of people, and me included, can kind of shut off a lot of different other types of music and bits of art because you're kind of like, this is what I like. This is part of who I am. Everything else is crap pop music oh that shit and yeah I I think that can be a fatal error if you continue and don't evolve and understand that yeah all music all art is good and trying to kind of think a little bit more three-dimensional that's a mistake I probably made a little bit earlier on but thankfully I grew out of that technically as I say yeah you make mistakes as you're kind of making music or you'll you'll make a slip up here but I think it's not the end of the world you should try and see the opportunity in that I mean if it's a yeah a crap out of tune note or whatever then sack it off mistakes are not such a heavy word in creativity what impact does producing itself have on your mental health, Jamie? Is it a wholly positive one? For example, being a good distraction, something cathartic when you're feeling down, or perhaps an escapism for you? Or has it ever become a negative as well? Yeah, a bit of both. Creative anxiety is something I've struggled with. It's a weird conversation you can have with yourself sometimes. Like, I know doing these things when I'm feeling down will probably make me feel better, but then you kind of put a weird pressure on yourself to, okay, well... If I sit down and if I make something and it's crap, I'm going to feel worse. So that can kind of sometimes keep you away from the chair a little bit. But once you actually get into creative flow, as they say, and you're not thinking about anything else other than what you're working on, 
which can happen while you're at work or whatever once you kind of get into that kind of part of your mind where you're just completely concentrating and you're completely in the present that's absolutely wonderful magical thing for anyone and yeah really really good for your mental health so once you get there it's amazing but it can sometimes be tough forcing yourself to get there you can kind of sometimes when you're down get a little bit self-destructive and you know eating crap or treating yourself badly is not good it's counterintuitive but you end up doing it anyway because you can kind of become a little bit self-loathing in some of your habits as well so yeah a bit of both I'd say. And producing music for the time that you have Jamie what has it taught you about yourself do you think as well? Um, What has it taught me about myself? Um, I don't know really. (laughs) I enjoy it I'm fairly good at it I'm probably a bit of a slow learner I enjoy it and that I should kind of embrace it a lot more especially when I sing I haven't recorded a lot of stuff with me singing for a while but it's like kind of linking back to the last question a little bit when I sing and get into it I feel like I'm on another planet sometimes if that sounds a bit uh, artifarty or whatever so it's helped me learn to kind of embrace those magical moments a little bit more and just enjoy it I don't know about what these things have taught me about myself as a person I'm all right at tapping away at a keyboard and chopping up some beats every now and then so yeah and just finally on this topic mate I always try and break down the myth of the superstar DJ and producer on behind the decks what are some of the realities of managing a full-time job or a part-time job alongside your music and producing that the listeners might not realize or even family and friends might not realize and how has that impacted your life yeah it's tough you've kind of got to get really really dedicated to what you're working on and sometimes that can be so so hard towards the end of last year I really wanted to try and get another follow-up to the mic track out before the end of the year but my day job was taking over a little bit too much and your energy can be drained like anyone coming home from work and then it's kind of like you've really got to step into the zone again and put a different hat on and go for it again that in itself is a challenge it can be hard to keep yourself motivated and keep the energy up it's not glamorous at all in terms of the way the music industry is set up I mean yeah I've just had one track and it's done okay but some really established artists struggle to make money through the streaming services and that's the main way people consume music now so you have to make a living in other ways or if you can and when we can try and make money from live stuff and merch but it's not as heady and glamorous as it maybe was in the 80s and 90s it can be a bit tough it's certainly not glamorous we talked all about Jamaha and the micmac single Let's go behind the decks now and talk about your own journey, Jamie. Firstly, tell me about your early life in Cov, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? Who's the Jamie we meet here? Yeah, I had really good childhood in retrospect. Lived in Coventry, outskirts of Coventry, in a couple of different villages throughout my childhood. And it's kind of countryside, rolling green hills. Spent most of my childhood in a village called Binley Woods, BW Massive. It was surrounded by a forest or a wood. So yeah, spent a lot of time dicking about in the woods with mates. It was really good. Got a brother who is almost like my twin. He's just a year younger, sounds and looks like me, and we follow each other everywhere. He lives over here now as well. My parents split up when I was two, and then I'd see my dad every now and then, and then that got longer and longer, and then he moved to the coast. 
but no kind of early signs of any mental health issues. It was fairly happy childhood. Maybe a bit weird growing up. I was a bit more into kind of counterculture and stuff and being a bit goofy and faffing around, but pretty decent. There's no kind of major trauma, I guess. Like you said, mate, your parents separated when you were pretty young, but your dad did give you a very big love of Celtic Football Club, which I guess you were pretty thankful for and maybe sometimes frustrated with in equal measure at times, like every football fan. But for you, music was clearly something that helped you carve out an identity for yourself growing up, especially when it came to music culture and impacting how you dressed. Was that an important period for you in finding your tribe, I guess? Yeah, I think it is for everyone, really. And definitely, like in your mid to late teens, you are trying on a lot of different identities. And there can definitely be a certain element of tribalism once you find your different gangs. I wasn't super popular at school. And I remember at high school, kind of floated between, like everyone had like their little cliques. And I was kind of not ever really in any kind of clique in that sense. But it was only kind of later on, like the last year or so, that develop good relationships with with a couple of people and it was mainly over music as you do so yeah that really helped make me feel like I belonged to something and just gave me a point of focus a lot of bonding over different records and stuff and then with that especially with the new metal period oh Jesus the different hoodies and chains that you'd wear and the I mean the different colours I'd have and different styles I remember they have like at the end of high school like a leaving assembly where like different characters are kind of pointed out and celebrated or given gifts and they pulled me up and gave me some red hairspray so I think I must have been remembered for some funky haircuts so yeah it is what it is I'd like to say it's helped me become the person I am today by spraying one euro glitter in my hair definitely You studied at Southampton University, initially doing a film and TV degree, but then you switched to sound design and recording. Looking back, was that an important moment for you in determining your life path and and was it an easy decision to make? I'm not sure how important it was. I think it was just a natural evolution. Once I'd started uni, I'd come from like a really amazing college course where they just gave you a little DV camera and like we'd have like a project for like that kind of month or so like okay you got to make a music video or okay you got to make a short film and then we were just allowed to kind of run off and get creative and then when I got to uni it was quite more structured didn't like a lot of the technical lectures in terms of how they were kind of putting the fear in people and it was yeah a lot more academic so I ended up leaning more towards stuff I was more safer and comfortable with and that was the sound design side of things because as I forgot to mention like many people when you start like a film education you might be thinking I want to be a director which is a lovely end goal to have but a bit naive to go in there thinking that's what I'll be from the output. I focus more on screenwriting because I've always been semi good at English and writing and developing ideas and stuff so that worked well for me and then the sound design was just kind of a natural thing because yeah I'm always comfortable with recording sounds and the audio side of thing so I'm not sure how important it was in the long term but it just felt like the right move at the time. You graduated and came back to Coventry and came to the realisation that you needed to move for work and opportunities. London wasn't for you so you chose Amsterdam instead. Can you tell me about this decision, the challenges it presented moving to a new city where I guess you didn't know many people and you didn't know the culture and what you learned along the way? Yeah, we'd just finished uni, moved back to Cov, and it was either move to London or move somewhere else. Yeah, I think I was like, 
a little bit of like a grumpy northerner like London shy. I don't want to move to London. It's overcrowded in price. I wanted to be a little bit different as well. Everyone was moving to London. So me and my partner at the time, we had some friends who lived over here in Amsterdam and I'd been over a couple of times before. It felt very, very exciting to come over here because we knew someone who already lived out here. It was a little bit easier they kind of told us what kind of paperwork you'd need and you could picture it a lot easier and it was tough moving out here I did a lot of kind of legwork beforehand and was knocking out CVs to different production houses and recording studios and had a couple of responses and then yeah once I got out here got a job fairly quickly working in the kitchen and your first six months in Amsterdam's a bit of a blur early 20s you know I'll leave that to the imagination but yeah it was a very fun time it felt a bit like an extension of the university I think some people can maybe understand that I think some people kind of go straight into adult life as it's weirdly defined once you come out of uni but a lot of people have that sense of arrested development I had that a little bit and Amsterdam was an incredible city and the Netherlands is a beautiful country. So yeah, I love it. There was one moment I wanted to touch on here which clearly impacted you a lot, mate. Perhaps it might have been a trigger for more difficult moments with your mental health further down the line. It involved a job interview, which we all get anxiety about. I don't care who you are. If you could, just tell me the story behind this and why it presented those difficulties for your mental health. Yeah, like looking back... I do feel like this moment was a pivotal one for how the next few years went. As I said, I'd done a lot of legwork and put together a CV and nice letters and applications and just blindly sent it out to, as I said, some production houses, theatres, recording studios, anywhere that was kind of dealing with the arts and recording sound. And one of my favourite at the top of the list kind of production houses got in touch and within a few weeks of me being out here, we'd locked in an interview. I'd already kind of started some kitchen work to get some more money rolling in. But yeah, I had this interview. I remember being really, really fucking nervous. I didn't know where I was going. I had to get like a taxi there. It was on the outskirts of Amsterdam in like an industrial estate. Fairly new to me because I'd only been there a few weeks and only really seen like the town centre and stuff. Got there, verbally went okay, but came to kind of play my DVD reel, which had some short films I'd scored and some of the stuff that I'd been Sam recording on. And yeah, the DVD jammed. I could just read the guy's face. Maybe I'd overread it, but I just died a little bit inside. And he was really super polite about it. I thought I'd absolutely blown it. They were, as I say, fairly polite. And then I got a call back from the owner of the actual company wanted to bring me in and have another chat but at that point I was so consumed with shame and I didn't know at the time but probably a lot of fear of rejection I sacked it off I made some excuse about uh, I'm going to try and settle into the country learn the language and the culture a little bit more and maybe I'll get back to you and just fobbed it off if I'd gone then maybe something good would have come of it but looking back I now understand that after reading up and learning about myself my mental health journey I think that was really a point where I started to move away from my actualized self a little bit and push my dreams and my true self down 
all because of the fear of rejection and then I coasted for the best part of a decade and I think you can only ignore yourself for so long before it starts rearing its head in many other symptoms. After this period you moved around a few jobs before you settled into a management role at a big tech company for a number of years. However, as you said, you hadn't managed to address those red flags from the job interview within yourself and other moments and your mental health began to deteriorate as well. If you could just tell me about this period of your life, the experiences in that role and why perhaps you began to struggle. Yeah, I started to move away from myself a little bit and I knew deep down this wasn't a good long-term strategy. I'd worked in a kitchen the first few years when I was here and then moved into a corporate environment, quickly became a lower middle manager in this company with a really super corporate environment, which it is what it is. A lot of people work in that and can find some joy in it. And I certainly had a good team around me. I was pretty good at being a manager and there was parts of it that I enjoyed that I think that's why I was able to do it for so long and it afforded me a quite comfortable life but subconsciously I think there was a lot going on there and you can only yeah as I say ignore yourself for so long before things start to appear or or form in other ways and so first few years in that tech job was fine but then the novelty wears off and there's this quiet quiet voice saying what are you doing you don't enjoy this you semi laughing at it and joke about it I think one of the early signs was I'd bore myself talking about it if it was at a party or something or dinner or meeting someone I'd really try and avoid talking about my job that was a clear indication that there was a, a sense of shame there I'd almost make excuses like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm even boring myself here. That's fine to a certain extent, but the voices kind of get louder and the symptoms get louder to the point where I was quite extroverted and outgoing. And then gradually, yeah, month by month, year by year, I got quieter and a lot more introverted, stopped going out, which is natural as you're getting older as well so I think I put it a little bit down to that but some real social anxiety was starting to kick in I started drinking heavily smoking heavily hitting the drugs a little bit harder and stuff like that and abusing myself and ignoring the voice inside me saying hey try and get back on track it doesn't all have to be defined by a career but I'd gone so far away from myself and not addressed it at all that things just got worse and worse. There were periods during this time where you tried to self-care, take time off, but you said the reintegration program you would be put on would just lead you back to the same place you were before and the stigma you felt was extremely high as a result and didn't change. How hard was that mentally to deal with, knowing you couldn't break that cycle, at least without huge difficulty? terrible it was really bad like as you mentioned I went on burnout with I don't know if it's a common phrase in the UK as much it's a big one over here because there's quite a lot of big tech companies and corporate jobs so from my circle of friends I know it's quite a common thing so I'd officially gone on a burnout notice with work but that involves a reintegration program and being a manager I'd been on the other side of that reintegration so I knew the other side of what my meetings with the company doctor I knew the discussions that were going on it was always going to be more about yeah it's unfortunate what's happened to this guy but how do we get him back into work so that was quite difficult to balance because I've been on both sides of that for me it was all about shame as well I just felt so so ashamed and my pride had taken a battering rather than deal with that I just quit the job because I knew it was going to be this really long drawn out reintegration process 
and the kind of shame and pride just took over I was like yeah I don't care I've got a little bit of savings not much and it was to be honest a stupid decision kind of financially but yeah those overriding feelings of shame were far greater than making a rational logical decision at the time it was a, a really tough period that one thing you said to me off air which really spoke to me mate you said quote I slumped into heavy depression for about a year after this and there were times when I really thought about ending things if you could say how did you feel in that period of perhaps suicidality and then on the flip side as well what got you through it do you think yeah it's a tough one um you hear about it especially if you're in a good place and maybe people that have not dealt with mental health I can certainly understand being flabbergasted about any talk about suicide and certainly I remember maybe points when I was a, a bit younger where I was like I don't understand how could you get to that point as I say now a long-term solution for a, a short-term problem uh, which is a lovely phrase but as I was not really dealing with things I mean quitting the job and kind of going on burnout was at the start the real start of the journey but at that point I thought right that's me addressed it I'm going to be fixed now but then came the actual sitting and wallowing in it and not having a job not knowing what the future holds not really getting a handle on my emotions that took a long time so shame was such a massive thing I just felt so ashamed of like what I was feeling how ridiculous it must feel to other people how much of a burden I was on my girlfriend and friends and family and as I call it go into airplane mode and just literally put airplane mode on my phone and not deal with any messages or phone calls or people coming in you can get to that point where for me as I say it was about shame I felt like I was so much of a burden to other people and I didn't have the tools at that moment to understand it and couldn't see you get to a point where you can't see a future like you literally can't visualize anything other than the best solution right now is to take yourself out of the game I'd had those thoughts I'd never gone to the next step as like prepping for it but I was certainly there and I think subconsciously I was raising the alarm bells with friends and family in certain ways to the point where they could see it a little bit and it was the friends and family and talking about it that helped me reach a little tiny speck of rational thinking inside that absolute black web of chaos that's going on inside you just yeah a little bit of light and logic kind of helped and just the actual thought of what I'd leave behind that was the one major thing that would and still would stop me from doing it the possible pain and emptiness that I'd maybe leave behind for other people would be too much can sometimes sound a bit big-headed like oh everyone would be devastated but yeah it was that that stopped me from kind of buying the pills or getting the rope or getting to that physical next step after this period you managed to receive some therapy which i hope helped you in getting to a better place with your mental health what form of therapy was it what did it teach you about yourself and how did it help you manage your mental health better in the months and years ahead? Yeah, I had some good sessions with, uh, I'd sought out an expat therapist. I felt it was better to kind of deal with like a common language because it was obviously a bit harder out here with the yeah, majority Dutch therapists. Funny that, being in the Netherlands. So yeah, I was very specific about who I went to meet. The therapy was... I don't think massively structured compared to some other practitioners. It wasn't full-on heavy CBT. 
he was quite actually quite spiritual there was a lot of physicality about the therapy and so a bit of screaming into pillows and whacking balloons and stuff like that a, a little bit more of the physicality but a lot of asking questions I had this misconception about therapy like from film and tv that they might ask a little bit or you just waffle on and then they tell you what the problems are and like okay here's what you do you do xyz blah 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 and there wasn't a lot of that it was more them asking open questions and you reaching some answers yourself it did really help and it started to give me the tools I wish I could have continued it but as I say I'd quit my job and I was paying for it myself so like I got to a point where I thought I had enough enough tools it kind of encouraged me to start writing like journal and that was really starting to help and I was starting to kind of work on more kind of a oh, terrible word but like spiritual side of things like looking at meditating and staying in the present and going for walks and removing all the bullshit and just listening to yourself a little bit more so that's what the therapy helped with coming out of this difficult period mate you've begun to rediscover yourself take on new creative projects and lots of different roles and skills teaching is one thing you've said to me has really invigorated you can you tell me about this part of your journey and the Jamie we meet at this point? Because I understand you even have some ideas about men's mental health yourself and maybe even some comedy ideas too. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. At this stage, I think I can never say, oh, I am completely 100% perfect human being. I think that is a huge error anyone would make. But since then, I've done a lot of self-discovery in terms of, yeah, I've read a lot of self-help books and listened to a lot of good advice and try to learn about myself a, a little bit more research in my personality types to do with psychology so that's given me much better understanding of who I am and what went wrong it's good to sit back and kind of analyze well why has that happened and I do think it's to do with not embracing yourself a fear of rejection and not being self-actualized or I mean you don't have to be completely self-actualized but to the point where at least be heading in the right direction and yeah through really looking at the psychology and personality I looked at like what career roles would really suit the type of person that I am and I've always in every role that I've had come alive with either kind of the creative side of things but teaching and coaching I was really good in the corporate side of things when I was doing coaching and really got something out of that and having one-to-ones with people and trying to motivate them even though I was feeling like shit at the time there was something quite motivating and invigorating about coaching other people so yeah I just tried a couple of different hats on in the meantime since I'd left the corporate role I've always been able to fall back on kitchen work because I'd done that since I was a lad so that's been helpful financially but yeah I've been doing a bit of writing did a bit of voiceover voice recording and want to have a go at some comedy as well that's why I started my Twitter and like if you go back and have a look at my page it wasn't all completely music orientated it was just a lot of like bits and jokes that I'd try and I've for a while since yeah going on this mental health journey there's been points that have kind of made me chuckle at myself a little bit so yeah I'm focusing on the teaching obviously always working at music as well another little side project is developing a sitcom based on like a an ex-plumber ex-football hooligan who finds the spiritual side of life 
Imagine Sean Dyche got into meditating. He was some kind of guru. Something along those lines. I've written out a few sketches and a bit of a structure, but that's the goal for this year, definitely, is to whack out a first draft for that and maybe just make bits of it myself and, and put it online. I'm looking forward to hearing or watching that sitcom whenever it comes out, mate. Given everything you've been through, Jamie, if you could go back and speak to that Jamie who was slogging his life away at the big tech company, putting on a mask to his co-workers and feeling pretty low, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Oh, um, yeah, tough one because I'm a kind of big believer in not changing your path too much. Maybe would feel even if I had a time machine it's probably necessary to have gone through what I've gone through I'd maybe not even want to deter from that path but to give advice to Jamie at that point probably be along the lines of like it's okay to feel crap you're not a lesser human being because of where you are or who you are you're not defined by external factors you can develop your own internal sense of worth something along those lines and certainly you can only control two things in this world and that's your thoughts and your actions our final topic of conversation jamie and it's one i try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly i know you're over in amsterdam which might have different restrictions or lockdowns compared to the uk but firstly given everything going on how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate yeah pretty good yeah really good i think it generally is at the start of the year i'm normally quite optimistic I do have a tendency towards the end of the year, and especially December, I think my family and friends will know. I don't know why. I do, last few years, get a bit rough towards the end of the year, I think, because there's a lot of like self-analysis and stuff can kind of go on, and you kind of look back on things. But yeah, I generally start the year with a fresh mind. Just got my computer back and restored, so that's good. Projects and optimism on the horizon, so feeling pretty good. And what age do you think you were when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health, do you think? Oh, really late, late 20s, probably around the, the age of 28 or so, just before I met my girlfriend. Very late on and I didn't take the notions too seriously. I was like, oh, maybe it's this and then just ignored it for another few years. And as I said, it was only when I went on burnout a few years back, that was me saying, right, I think there's something going on here. Again, that took a long time to wrap my head around. It was probably there for a long time, Fred, but yeah, you ignore it in different ways. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health now? Who was it with? How did it go? And looking back, did it feel like a big moment in your life and a big burden or weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something normalised and insignificant? Yeah, it was... Probably on the first day that I decided not to get out of bed and go to work again and that I would have had a conversation with my partner at the time and it was definitely not a weight lifted. There was probably an element of comfort in there but it was just the start of the journey at that point. There was probably something nice about putting things on the table so to speak. That was maybe day one. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? It could be things people might say to you, could be a sound, could be a sensation, maybe a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think periods of pressure or periods where I'm facing analysis, maybe, or a potential approval centering still around the fear of rejection is still something I'll probably struggle with 
possibly forever or like I'll get stronger and better at it I think it's good to be exposed and maybe get rejected a couple of times probably that'll happen with some music I put out or some scripts and stuff that I write or sketches so I will actively try and seek it out and try and take on those triggers a little bit they're definitely ones but yeah other triggers is like when my phone's going a lot and there's a yeah social anxiety there's not as much to be exposed to now but like a really busy bar or like a really noisy party I do find when like a couple of people are trying to talk to me at once that can slightly trigger something anxiety wise that can then develop and get a little bit stronger now because of lockdown and the quieter life I find a similar type of social anxiety trigger comes along when I'm getting bombarded on my phone a little bit or I've got a few emails to get back to but I'm a lot better at trying to keep on top of things and also not beating myself up and setting some boundaries for myself. You don't have to get back to someone immediately just because of the message due and that can be a bit difficult in this day and age. People almost expect sometimes an immediate response because we're so active and online but I try not to be governed by that as much and that helps. We've already talked about the tools and methods you use to help your mental health, Jamie. When it comes to toxic masculinity, it's a big topic on this podcast. And hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, it will become a very small minority and masculinity itself won't be derided and can be a very positive thing. What would you define as toxic masculinity and what examples of it have you experienced that you can share with the listeners? Yeah, well, Freddie, you're doing some great work by exposing this because I think it's a big one. It's definitely related to the horrendous numbers you get with like male suicides and depression as well. It's definitely a, a driving factor of that. I define toxic masculinity as like a shared cultural sense that men should be immune to any emotional pain or not even express any emotional pain. We are hunter-gatherers, strong adults, earn money, physically and mentally strong and we like the stronger butcher things in life. I think it's a weird, horrible, twisted part of our culture that's probably come about from one, a lot of historically, a lot of men who have not understood their own egos and their own mental health. And I think if you taught mental health or emotional intelligence in school, there would be half the world's problems. I think the majority of world leaders, thankfully ones that we've just got rid of, would be completely different if they were taught about how their egos and emotional intelligence worked. And I also think a part of toxic masculinity is reflected back in marketing and advertising culture, still backs that up a little bit. Now, these days, not as much. I think we have to be wary of how advertising and marketing is starting to use mental health. Sorry, I'm kind of going off on a side topic here, but that's how I define it and then how it's affected me. Maybe back in the day, even if... I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve when I used to drink a lot or not a lot just like when you drink when you're at uni and stuff I was one for always kind of talking about emotions a little bit not that I understood it at that point and where I was at but you can kind of get shut down if you were like the rugby lads or something which I try to avoid anyway but I think as most people understand it it's that fear of or not able to embrace your emotions and to talk about it means that you're weaker and you should bottle everything up and just crack on 
I also talk a lot about positive masculinity, Jamie, and hopefully with a few more pods, masculinity will be just positive masculinity and vice versa. What would you define it as and what qualities do you think a man should exude to be described as being positively masculine? Is it, for example, emotional intelligence or emotional toughness in a word? So being able to ride the challenges of life and stay focused and be able to deal with them in a, in a good way? Is it, for example, self-confidence, self-awareness, empathy, supporting others? What can you tell me here? Yeah, I think the opposite to what we've discussed being open-minded having some kind of sense of emotional intelligence not even intelligence just being as I say open to these things self-confidence is a dangerous one I think empathy is the key I think being able to remain empathetic and understanding of everyone even if it's a CEO who you might think is a bit of a twat opening up to you or someone who's a little less off from you as well and I think empathy is one of the best skills best things that any human being could have regardless of your male or, or female that is a good starting point for positive mental male masculinity and just finally mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to start early as I said get it in schools in some way parents can be a part of that as well obviously like if you read into psychology and whatnot you'll understand that the way a kid is raised in the first decade or even earlier can be vital to how they process emotions later on some good parenting that avoids getting into cliches and tropes about gender roles and what have you culturally our generations just need to keep talking about it and doing the good work that we do it just keep talking about it raising these points it does help when you have sporting role models and celebrities and stuff helping with that celebrity culture is a little bit iffy as well but i understand that we all have role models be that an older brother or a really good teacher at school that is important as well and you can get a good message through roles like that as well so if a footballer wants to talk about it or the a prince wants to talk about it then that can only be a good thing so culturally we keep at it but from educationally is where you need you need to start so emotional intelligence in schools some kind of mental health awareness would be good and done by proper practitioners not someone like me just waffling on after a few self-help books well we have come to the end of this episode of behind the decks i want to say a big thank you to jamaha for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the decks with him jamaha's big mick record mick mac will play us out and I'll put some links to where you can follow Gemma Hart on social media and stream his music in the show notes. As always, thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or please, 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 if you're feeling generous, it will really help us out to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or even better, support our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash uk. Every penny really does count right now. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Uh, 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 uh. Come on, off ski. And I said to TC, get that number out. And he said, Oh, I said, you know. Yeah, yeah. Push it, push it, push it.
the whole team. It, it, it's got to be.